0: I want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released abolitionist teaching workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting QuetzalEC.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com and if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a five percent discount on their abolitionist teaching pd series once again you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their connect with us page and with Natalie Vardabasso of Edu Crush, I'm Gerardo Munoz. I am your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, and I am Habitually Disruptive. And I am here with someone that I just saw at a super fancy event last week. Um, Have you recovered from like all of that yet?
1: I've been on maternity leave. And so the Teacher of the Year Week in Washington was the last week of my maternity leave. So oh, wow. I had to leave my four-month-old for the first time, Dude. ever, for six days, and then I got back. I had the weekend, and then I went back to teaching full-time on Monday. So <laughs> it's been a whirlwind. I don't think I've had time to even really think about being recovered. But um, yeah, yeah I, I, I had I, a dream about it last night actually, did you? <laughs> about the event, about the gala, and that I don't know. It was one of those weird dreams where you're replaying everything, and yeah, you know, it was it was. It was, a was the dream better
0: dream. or worse than the real thing
1: it was an anxiety dream it was like oh no uh, okay everyone was dressed up fancy and I didn't have a dress and I think it was kind of <laughs> reflecting on you know that like subconscious feeling of not being worthy
0: I think. yeah Being no.
1: around all these you know phenomenal educators and people and at least that's kind of how I analyzed it was how What an incredible experience. And was I worthy of that experience? I think is maybe what that dream came about to be.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. No, I woke up on, let's see, came home on Saturday. And I think I woke up Sunday morning, just really unsure of what city I was in. Like, just like, hold on. Am I still in BC? No. Okay, this is interesting. Well, so, um, you know, you talk about whether you're worthy of being in that group. I, I'm here to tell you, you are. Uh, folks, I want to introduce you to my friend Chrissy Borg, the 2021 Montana Teacher of the Year. So I'm going to offer you your flowers and your snaps and all that kind of stuff, and just want to welcome you to Habitually Disruptive.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Gerardo. It's an honor to be talking with you. And I really look forward to listening more to your podcast.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, my spouse jokes that I talk so much that I have to have a podcast when I run out of people to talk to. So, um, but I think um, one of the things that really was like, why I really wanted you on this show is, is because part of being a disruptor is allowing yourself to be disrupted. And so I've been teaching for 23 years in Denver Public Schools. I think our high school program is bigger than your district. And um, I would love to like hear about that and and just kind of like the different realities that teachers are facing in 2021. But before we get into that, I want to sort of know how your path kind of led you into teaching. Where are you from? How did you grow up? Did you always know you wanted to be a teacher or how did that all play out?
1: And uh, I've been on maternity leave, and so the Teacher of the Year week in Washington was the last week of my maternity leave. So I had to leave my four-month-old for the first time ever for six days, and then I got back, I had the weekend, and then I went back to teaching full-time on Monday. So (laughs) it's been a whirlwind. I don't think I've had time to even really think about being recovered, but um, yeah. Yeah, I I, I had a dream about it last night, actually, about the event. (laughs) Not the gala and that i don't know it was one of those weird dreams where you're replaying everything and yeah you know it was it was it was a was the dream, dream better
0: or worse than the real thing
1: it was an anxiety dream. It was like oh no, uh, okay. everyone was dressed up fancy and I didn't have a dress. And I think it was kind of reflecting on, you know, that like subconscious feeling of not being worthy. I
0: think, yeah. Being no.
1: around all these, you know, phenomenal educators and people. And at least that's kind of how I analyzed it was how, you know, yeah. what an incredible experience. And was I worthy of that experience? I think right. is maybe what that dream came about to be
0: <laughs> that makes sense no I woke up on let's see came home on Saturday and I think I woke up Sunday morning just really unsure of what city I was in like <laughs> just like hold on am I still in BC no okay this is interesting well so um, you know you talk about whether you're worthy of being in that group I- I'm here to tell you you are uh, folks I want to introduce you to my friend Chrissy Borge the 2021 Montana Teacher of the Year. So I'm going to offer you your flowers and your snaps and all that kind of stuff. And just want to welcome you to Habitually Disruptive.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Gerardo. It's an honor to be talking with you. And I really look forward to listening more to your podcast.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, you know, my spouse jokes that I talk so much that I have to have a podcast when I run out of people to talk to. So, um, but I think, um, what, one of the things that really was like, why I really wanted you on this show is, is because part of being a disruptor is allowing yourself to be disrupted. And so I've been teaching for 23 years in Denver public schools. I think our high school program is bigger than your district. And um, I would love to like hear about that and and just kind of like the different realities that teachers are facing in 2021. But before we get into that, I want to uh, sort of know how your path kind of led you into teaching. What, where are you from? Where, how did you grow up? Did you always know you wanted to be a teacher or how did that all play out?
1: So I grew up in a little resort town in Montana and i um, before it was really a big resort town. My dad and my grandfather moved there in the early '70s, and my grandpa was an excavator and kind of helped uh, build some of the roads that led to okay. the ski area. So it's Big Sky Resort is what yeah. it is now. Um, but at the time, you know, it was just kind of this really rural area developing, and so I went to a K through eight school where there were you know ten to fifteen students in a class, yep. fewer than a hundred students in the school. and um school was always just my community it was my happy place i think just going to a small school you feel really uh included i played just about every sport you could even though i wasn't the best (laughs) at all of them you kind of had to play so that there were enough kids on the team (laughs) right and then um i went to high school in a bigger district so we i had to take a bus uh an hour and a half each way to get to high school (laughs) So yeah. we'd load the bus at, you know, 6.45 a.m. to go to high school. So that was wow. a big commute. And mm-hmm. um, and I, I I high school was tough for me just because I went from this small school where I was really confident and knew everybody and was involved in everything to a school that had 20 or about 2,000 students. And oh, I wow. felt a little, yeah, I just, you felt a little lost in school, go into the big city, which in Montana, you know, big cities like 50,000. So I grew up in a little resort town in Montana and, um, before it was really a big resort town, my dad and my grandfather moved there in the early seventies. And my grandpa was an excavator and kind of helped, uh, build some of the roads that led to the ski area. So it's big sky resort is what it is now. Um. But at the time, you know, it was just kind of this really rural area developing. And so I went to a K through eight school where there were, you know, 10 to 15 students in a class, yeah. fewer than 100 students in the school. Yeah. And um, school was always just my community. It was my happy place. I think yeah. just going to a small school, you feel really uh included I played just about every sport you could even though I wasn't the best <laughs> yeah. at all of them you kind of had to play so that yep, there were enough yep. kids on the team <laughs> right and then um I went to high school in a bigger district so we I had to take a bus uh an hour and a half each way Home to man. get to high school so <laughs> yeah. we'd load the bus at you know 6:45 a.m. to go to high school so that was wow. a big commute and mm-hmm. um, and I, 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 high school was tough for me just because I went from this small school where I was really confident and knew everybody and was involved in everything to a school that had 20 or about 2000 students and oh, I wow. felt a little, yeah, I just, you felt a little lost in school, go into the big city, which in Montana, you know, big cities, like 50,000
0: or (laughs) 50,000 people. People,
1: But for me, it was a big change. Um, And I actually didn't start off as an education major in college. I went to our local university and I started off in psychology. And I think I always knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I, you know, finances were always a struggle for my parents growing up. Money was always that conversation back and forth and that argument. And so I thought, you know what? Yeah. I don't wanna worry about finances. I wanna get a job that I can be comfortable. And so, you know, I thought I was maybe going to be one of those, I don't I don't think psychologists are that wealthy, but I, I think they make more <laughs> money than teachers. <laughs> um, uh. And so I started off a psychology major. I loved learning about the brain and how the brain works. And then my, freshman year in college, I had a close friend whose dad died by suicide and he was a third grade teacher in Idaho. And so I traveled to his memorial service. It was about a seven or eight hour drive in the middle of winter. And on the way back, I was driving through this blinding snowstorm and all I could think about from that memorial service was listening to his principal talk about the impact of his work third graders had drawn pictures to kind of process their grief and seeing the third grade work and their um, interpretation of the impact that he had made on their lives it just I couldn't I couldn't get away from it Um, it just really I don't want to say it haunted me but it was almost like it was just very cathartic in the sense that I drove home I got back and I think that Monday I went into my education advising office and I changed my major and I just, I never looked back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so that, that makes me think of a couple of things because I feel like, um, at least for me, who my experiences and my identity are inseparable from the work that I do, um, you know, I, I'm not a person that is grinding myself into dust. And uh, before we start recording, we we were talking about Angela Watson and her amazing work to try to make teaching a sustainable uh, profession. Um, but you know, I think teaching does require that you're able to show up in the most authentic way possible. What what is it in your like? Where where's the nexus between your interest in psychology and 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 the human brain? and this decision to go into education.
1: Well, first of all, I think um, all teachers are acting psychologists because we're thinking about what makes our students tick and and what background experiences are they bringing with them into the classroom every day. And how can we connect to their emotions to make our content relevant. Right. I also wanted to just speak about I had an experience when I was 22 years old, I actually uh, I traveled to Cambodia to work as a volunteer English teacher yeah. and the reason I went to Cambodia was because my grandmother had worked there during the Khmer Rouge I'm not sure oh, if you're wow. familiar with that yes. conflict but she was she was an aid worker um, in the late 70s and so she had these contacts with Cambodian families um, that she had befriended in her time there and so I went and I spent a whole summer in Cambodia before I student taught. Mm. And I worked for this organization that provided free English classes to students from the poorest province in Cambodia. I was 22 years old and not even a real teacher yet. So as part of the volunteer English teaching program, I got to travel to Prevang, which is one of the poorest provinces in Cambodia. And see where my students at that time were coming from hmm. so they were all you know like 18 19 year old college freshmen in the business program and they hmm. were there on scholarship yeah. and so I got to see their k-12 school um all so these outdoors were, these were
0: international students that were or are there students at the at the at school the that you're teaching Penn English. university gotcha okay
1: yeah and so they were you know they were I was only a handful of years older than them but uh The director of the program felt it was important for me to see where they had come from. And so, you know, just really the shining stars of their community to get to be on scholarship. And going to their school, the school staff and the students there treated me like I was a celebrity, only because I was a teacher. Wow. And so I think seeing that global perspective of how others view education and educators really changed mm-hmm. my worldview. And it also made me think about how, like our perception of normal is limited by our experiences. And I don't yeah. think a lot of people in rural areas or even in Montana get to experience what it's like to be, you know, the only person in a certain cultural setting. Um, yeah. And so that just really changed my whole view on what it means to be an educator and how education is around the whole world. Yeah. And what what experience I has had I have had have limited my own perspectives.
0: I had to let that soak for a second. I think that's a really interesting perspective that our experiences can both broaden and limit our perspectives. I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of think about. Um, let's, uh, let's kind of get into um, what it is that makes your teaching context unique. Um, so tell us about where you teach and what's unique about it from, from someone's perspective who's not a part of that. Cause, Cause I have other questions too about, you know how are you viewed as an educator in your community um, in comparison to what you experience in Cambodia and that kind of thing, so yeah, tell us about where you teach and how that is.
1: Certainly. So I teach in Polaris, Montana. It is in southwest Montana, and I teach in a one-room school. And before teaching in a one-room school, I didn't even realize that this setting still existed even in Montana. I knew there were so folks. Homes. I want
0: to. I want to pause this for a second. I, yes, you heard her say a one-room school. Um, and, uh, and I, I think this is a moment for all of you to learn that one-room schools exist. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: Yeah. And Montana actually has more operational one-room schools than any state in the U S we have 62 in operation Wow. and, um, our schools are really the cornerstones, cornerstones of our communities. Yeah. And so for example, I, in my last seven years, At the school, I've had from five to 15 students in the entire district. So that might look like having one student per grade level. And you're the only full-time staff member in the school, which has, you know, has its uh, autonomy. So I love that part of it. Um, Yeah. I'm responsible for I make my schedule. I decide what I'm going to teach when. I wow. have to find the curriculum. I am I answer the phones. I oh, <laughs> shovel man. the sidewalk. I mow <laughs> the lawn in the summertime. wow. wow. Um, and so that's
0: so it's so just fascinating very different. Yeah, no, that's so fascinating to me. Like, so, you know, my spouse is um, an early elementary educator and I can't even imagine like what her job is like, you know, in terms of overwhelming and all of the things like how, how do you, how do you, how?
1: (laughs) Well, I'll, to give a little background before teaching here, I taught for four years in a more traditional school in the sense Mm -hmm. that you know, it was a middle school and you had 30 kids per class and you had team meetings and you had a technology person and a right. maintenance person. And so, working in a traditional school where you had, you know, a technology person and a principal on site and a school yep. guidance counselor and school buses. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> to being the only staff member in a school. And I, I didn't really know how to do that. So I, I <laughs> met with a teacher who had been there before me and asked her a lot of questions. Yeah. And then I also, um, created a, there's a network of us really, it's called the Montana right. small schools Alliance. And so just in my County alone, there are six schools that have either one or two teachers in them. Yeah. And so I actually made a point of it. My first year teaching in that setting to go and observe other teachers Sure. Because I wanted to know how to do it. I really didn't know how. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the only so, thing that
0: comes into my mind is those old black and white pictures with the, you know, the with the woman teacher in the big flowy dress and the chalkboard, and you know, so that would have been I, my only I, template, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I have I have those pictures of our school. I mean, my school is over wow. 100 years old. Wow! Um, oh, that's it's so really cool. nearby the first territorial capital of Montana it's and people settled there to mine for gold as well as um, to ranch but prior to that Montana was home to you know several American Indian tribes and in as part of Montana we learn about you know Indian education for all it's actually legislation that requires us to incorporate the indigenous perspective which is really important in our state And so our area that I'm in was actually designated common hunting ground for the different tribes in Montana. And nearby my school, which is actually where I took my students on a field trip this fall is the reunion point where Sacagawea was with her tribe after being on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So just to give you a little bit of uh, background, the mountain outside my schoolhouse, it's called Baldy.
0: Okay. Oh, I've heard of Mount
1: Molly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's said to be a reference point that Sacagawea used as she was leading the Lewis wow. and Clark expedition through our area. So we're along that trail. Oh, and, that's so interesting. Yeah, and it's just a really rural area. And so we have to network with the other teachers in our area, even if they are upwards of 40 miles away. Wow. I, I was really surprised and relieved to know that even though I'm so far away from other schools and i don't have other staff members to collaborate (laughs) with on site Um, we have this network of teachers in these similar settings and so we collaborate we get together for professional development every other month and even though we are isolated physically and geographically we do collaborate and connect to Provide our students with experiences that they yeah. would get in a larger.
0: Wow. I have so many questions. Um so thank thank you for letting me be an anthropologist um, <laughs> in your world. Um, so one of the questions I have is there's a part of me that looks at this and says, Oh my gosh, amazing. Because it sounds like, you know, we know that autonomy has two sides, right? That you're you have autonomy, you can make whatever choices, you know, are right for your students and community, but also you are the one that's making those choices and you're the one that has to kind of gather all that kind of stuff. So I think so I think I guess the first thing would be is that I want to hear more about is how how is like is it as cool as it sounds to just be able to respond to the needs of the students in front of you? Or is it that double edged
1: sword like double edged sword. So with that autonomy comes a great responsibility and when i talk about that i mean in the sense that the buck stops at you so you don't have a principal on site so if you have a behavior problem with a student it's you yourself and i that has to figure it out um wow you don't if something for example if you have a gas leak at school or if the heater goes out or if the power goes out you are the only adult individual oftentimes in the room to I, deal with that problem. Yeah. Um, I've had instances where I've had students run away from the building and I've had to chase them, you know, towards oh, the highway. <laughs> <gosh>. <laughs> so you, with that, yeah, with that autonomy comes the responsibility of yeah. being, you know, accountable for making sure that you're providing your students the best education that they can, as well as advocating for yourself as a teacher. So we don't have a collective bargaining uh, group because the school district, (laughs) the school board. So we have three school board members. I attend every school board meeting. We do not have a salary schedule. So even though I have 10 years of experience and a master's degree, I'm paid lower than I was my first year of teaching our school's funding is so dependent upon how many students we have each year and that fluctuates so the difference between five students and ten students really impacts our school's budget yeah and so for example when they were discussing maternity leave policy i was the first teacher that they'd ever had to figure out how to approach maternity leave (laughs) and i had to find i had to piecemeal together my maternity leave of you know six weeks I had to piecemeal it together between three different uh, women in the community. And so it's not uh, like there's those systems of support in place right. for you as a teacher. You really have to advocate for yourself and, and, and create
0: some of those systems. It sounds like
1: it's, you know, multi-tiered systems of support. And so had I not had that training at my previous school, I wouldn't have known okay, do I administer fluency screenings? How do I know how my kids are doing? You have to make all of those decisions. Superintendent of schools who oversees our six schools and she was you know, a huge mentor to me in this process. But had I not had that leadership and had I not right. had that four years of experience in a bigger school... I think it would have been so overwhelming, and, and that's a huge issue with rural schools as well as uh, reservation schools in Montana yeah. is teacher yes. retention and recruitment, because right. um, not only are we paid less, but our responsibilities and duties More. are so great in terms of what we're expected to do yep. and what we have to do to meet the needs of our students.
0: That's right. There's not a sliding scale of what students need, right? There's There, there are these, these needs. And you know, my experience is nowhere near what kind of you're describing, but it, my school is a small school. And you start seeing how economics of scale really play out where it's like, okay, students still need the, like high school students still need these 240 graduation credits. We just have a third of the staff to deliver those. And I think that's like, so that scale piece is really important. That's something that's come up in conversations I've had with other rural school teachers. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, like, so how did you find this job and what drew you to it? Yeah,
1: it's kind of a wild story. So my husband was the realtor. I was teaching middle school and we both come from really small towns and Bozeman was getting busy for us. Yeah, He had Bought our first home before the housing boom. I think we each had to put five thousand dollars down <laughs> for yeah. our house, and wow. he was a realtor. and Just seeing how everything was growing, and you know the the cost of everything was increasing. And so at first yeah. we just really wanted to move out into the country <laughs> yeah. and buy land. We just we both are more comfortable in wide open spaces. Yeah. And as he was looking at properties, he came across this little ski area. So the the cost of this ski area that was for sale was about the same as some of the houses and properties that oh, were wow. being sold in Bozeman. Yeah. And so we realized if we could sell our house, we could use the profit from the two years of owning our house to make a down payment to own this yeah. little one chair lift, very tiny not <laughs> fancy amazing. ski area that I had gone to as a kid um, for right, ski racing. You were-
0: you were a competitive skier that, that came up yeah. in the cahoot that we did when <laughs> yeah. we were in DC.
1: <laughs> we decided to drive out there and look at it and um we met with the owner who was aging and also uh fighting skin cancer. Yeah. And it's you know it's not fancy. There's shake carpeting on the walls of the lodge <laughs> of the ski area. There's one chair lift. The lodge was built in the early seventies and has brown shag carpet on the
0: walls. (laughs) That's amazing.
1: And it's by no means fancy. And as we drove out there, we drove past the one room school Mm -hmm. uh, along the way. And I was very fascinated by it and we decided to try and go for it. And I started looking for jobs. And it turns out that the one room school was in need of a teacher. So wow. I, I applied for the job there. And, you know, when the board members called me, they said, why do you want to do this <laughs> <here?" laughs> So I, we got your
0: application.
1: just And knowing now how small the community is, I understand why it was kind of right. wild to see somebody, you know, from
0: from like bozeman from from like a much bigger place right
1: yeah why do you want to teach here and so i told them what my husband and i were trying to do and so i actually got the teaching job before we got the ski area wrapped up we actually got turned down by two banks um, oh wow to try and buy the ski area we ended up having to pull in some of my husband's friends uh, right. to go in on it with us so that we could qualify for the yeah. bank loan. And so it was really hard because we yeah, had no imagine. place to live. We hadn't sold our house. I had this teaching job. And so we ended up buying this 31 foot RV. I think it was a 91 oh, okay. bounder
0: <laughs> and oh, wow. we drove
1: it. We, we limped it after several breakdowns. <laughs> we limped it from uh, Spokane, Washington to Polaris, and we lived in that RV in the parking lot of the ski hill for two years.
0: Oh, wow. And this little
1: school, the little school I worked in had a teacherage, but it was full of teaching materials. So it wasn't really a livable space, but that's where I was able to shower and do my laundry. (sighs) We finally sold our house that September and we were able to pull together the resources to make the deal on the ski area go through. Yeah. So it's a, a roundabout way, you know, it worked, ended up working out because I got to do what I love, which is teaching. Yep. And my husband got to do what he loves, which is, he's basically a mechanic and, uh, he fixes the chairlift. Everything breaks at our little ski sure. area because everything's <laughs> old. <laughs> and so my husband's a, what he calls a glorified mechanic,
0: there you uh, go. but
1: he, he runs the ski area and I get to teach at the school. And, awesome. and so we've just become a part of the community. My husband and I are able to be in the same space doing what we love, and I think yeah. that's actually rare for teachers in rural areas. And that's why there's so much turnover if they're not a part of the community. They don't have those reasons to stay. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's I, that's um, that's really interesting. I mean, especially like just hearing the. It is a wild story. It is as advertised. Um, what's interesting to me kind of is like so many folks in your same situation would have just been like, sorry, I can't take this job. Things didn't work out. What was it that made you want to stay and 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 sort of, sounds, I, mean, I may have this wrong, but it, it sounds like you kind of centered future possibilities around this um, job teaching in this school. Is that, am I understanding that right?
1: Yeah. So as far as what made me want to stay. And um, first of all, the next school over is about 40 miles away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I had yeah. to have gotten <laughs> this job, I would be commuting pretty far. Right. And then second of all, the the charm of a one room school is as charming as you'd think it'd be. Mm. And so I, I, I get observers from the local university in Dillon And I tell the student observers from the college that teaching in a one-room school is like teaching fairyland in the sense that you're one big family. Yeah. So for instance, I have a student that I've taught since kindergarten and she's now in the sixth grade. So I've literally gotten to watch her grow up and I tell the student observers from the college that teaching in a one-room school is like teaching fairyland in the sense that You're one big family. Yeah. So for instance, I have a student that I've taught since kindergarten and she's now in the sixth grade. So I've literally gotten to watch her grow up. Yeah, Um, I my fourth graders that I have now that started in kindergarten and didn't know any. And so that just really brings me joy is that um, almost familial relationship that you have with your students and their families.
0: That's so that's so deep, because I mean, you know, again, not to overemphasize any parallels between where I work and where you work, because I think there are pretty significant differences. But one of the parallels is it's really we are a six through 12 school. And so it's it's sometimes really difficult to explain to people what that feels like to have students that you meet when they're 11 years old, when they're just barely out of elementary school and like to see them all the way through their adolescent years into being 18 year old adults who are like out to see the world and making decisions. And that familial um, description that you provided, I think is really apt because it is, it does feel like more than just a teacher student relationship, it's, it's a community relationship.
1: Exactly, and to illustrate further, I've been to my students 4-H shows where they're showing their pigs at the yep. county fair. Um, one of my students' mom is a stylist and so I go to their living room and she gives me my haircut every couple That's of amazing. months. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
1: one of my students that graduated the eighth grade last year, she now works as an employee at my husband's small business and I got to help train her this summer. Your school is your community essentially and vice versa. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think those tight relationships like they they still exist in big schools but I but I think what you're describing is is kind of next level and it makes me think of so I'm always thinking about issues of equity and issues of are we providing the resources to allow for the best education possible and I, and I've been able to gather some stories of educators working in rural settings um and what I hear constantly is exactly kind of what you're describing. First, the relationship with the community is key, that you will be able to succeed and, and really engage well if you have a good relationship with the community. The second thing I hear is, like you, um, these educators have to do everything. Like everything comes down to what they're able to do and that kind of thing. What are the things that city slickers like myself and uh, folks in my environment can do or advocate for that would actually support um, educational contexts like yours.
1: Thought a lot about this and you talked about access to resources. Mm-hmm. And I think access to resources or lack thereof uh, compared to larger districts is our number one issue is it, in terms of student equity, especially yeah. our students um, in poverty and students who don't have access. So for example, our school's so small, we do not have a school bus. Our parents are responsible for transporting their kids to school. So in my years as a teacher there, I have driven kids in my personal vehicle to and from field trips, or I've brought them to their house. So in discussing equity in our rural areas, um, in addition to transportation and not having a school bus, And when you think about the pandemic, I think the question of equity in terms of access to internet and technology was huge. For instance, during the pandemic, our local internet services provider, we were able to get them to increase the bandwidth to different students' homes at no cost so that they could actually be on Zoom for their lessons. And then the biggest piece that I'm passionate about as far as in our rural settings is the access to Mental health resources yeah so in small schools like mine we do not have a school guidance counselor yeah
0: you don't have counselors you don't have school psychologists you don't have social worker any of that
1: right and and so what we have to do as teachers is we take a half day workshop um, about school guidance counseling in order to achieve accreditation and then we do have access to a school guidance counselor among our consortium of i think over 100 schools but mm-hmm. that, that person isn't able to provide any sort of one-on-one counseling. So if right, a student needs right. to see a counselor, their closest bet is to drive to Dillon, which is 45 miles away. Wow. And if they were to need to see you know, a clinical psychologist, that's another 150 miles away. Ooh. And that has been, I think, the most uh, important part of being Teacher of the Year as far as what can I do to address that. And so right now my school is a pilot site for what's called the uh, Rural School Telecounseling Project. And it's through uh, the University of Montana. And we got a grant from the Department of Justice. And by we, I mean the university, I'm just a pilot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so what we're able to do with that grant is the university students who are in the school guidance counseling program are able to provide one on one counseling to my students over Zoom. It's been wow. really, really important, yeah. especially for some of my older students who are facing some really serious issues that I did not have the training or the um, experience to provide support with them like they needed. Yeah. And so I'd like to see that program grow and hopefully be supported because, you know, my school is one of you know, 100 schools that does not have any sort of school guidance counselor on site. So how do we, how do we provide these services to kids in a state like yours? I know you're in the Rocky mountain state where suicide is one of the highest rates of death among our youth. And I've lost personally, I've lost two former students to suicide. And I just want to do everything there is possible to provide them with that support because we are in a mental health desert in our state. Wow
0: man that's deep that mental health desert that's that's really profound. It, It makes me kind of wonder a little bit so there's a traditional kind of model of education that's based very much in urban realities in, you know, when when I talk about class size, you know, and I've got 35 kids in a class like that, that's just not the reality that that you face. Um, I wonder how much of the system as currently constituted needs to be disrupted to support the work that you're doing with kids. So you're mentioning access to counseling and mental health support, but also there was, you know, you had a, a kind of a passing comment about school funding and the, the per pupil funding models that can really make or break your, your entire school and by extension your community. I'm wondering um, where you see a need for like real systemic, at least flexibility for you to be able to serve your students the best that you can
1: two things so the funding model is one that i think really needs to be closely examined so first of all why are these rural and reservation schools having such a challenging time recruiting teachers well number Mm -hmm. one they can't pay them and number two there's no housing and so affordable teacher housing is again an issue that goes beyond schools but why why is it that our school you know, can only pay their teachers salary $24,000 a year. (laughs) Why is that, that (sighs) we can't have a salary schedule? Um, And you know, our legislation is working. They actually just passed a bill in our state legislation to incentivize rural schools to pay teachers the average starting teacher's salary in Montana, which is $34,000 a year. Mm-hmm. But I gathered feedback from my school board as well as teachers and their school boards. And school boards don't want to use the incentive because it only lasts for three years. And it's only for the teacher who's teaching um, their first three years in that setting. And yeah. then what do they do after those first yeah. three years? They leave.
0: They leave. Yeah. Or
1: the school can't afford to pay them that anymore. So I think so that is, is the biggest system. It's not sustainable. And then also, I think a lot about how why isn't our school guidance counseling a, a part of our special education cooperative? And so schools like mine, we receive special education through a cooperative, uh, okay. you know ot and special ed um, speech therapy and those services are provided but why can't we have a school guidance counselor as part of that process because a lot of students need those emotional uh, and behavioral supports as part of their ieps yeah and so that is a question i have i don't have the answer to yet but it's something i feel like could be changed so that we are able to provide counseling services to students in these rural areas. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of the questions that emerges for me as well is kind of a cultural question. Um, I know that, so my school is predominantly Latinx, Hispanic students. And in in that community, there's a little bit of a stigma when it comes to seeking mental health support. So I'm wondering how your community addresses mental health support. Like you talked about how, you know, mental health support and, you know, those kinds of things aren't always wrapped into the larger uh, guidance counseling role. Um, Is that a lack of capacity? Is that a lack of priority? Or is it kind of a little bit of both?
1: I would say both. I think Montana as a whole, you know, we're in this ranching dominant feeling that um you know mental health is for somebody who can't who isn't tough enough or you know can't handle the realities yeah um i think you know even just down the road at the high school you it's very centered upon sports and success that way it's a ranching community and so there's that stigma of course around receiving mental health services especially for uh males and I don't know how to break that other than with my students when i was presenting the opportunity for them to have access to a guidance counselor is just showing you know talking about my own experience in receiving counseling as a college student and needing that and how it's just trying to normalize access to health um but as far as the root cause there's definitely the stigma but there's also the lack of access i mean i i have a family member A male family member who really struggled with alcoholism, and there's no place to send him (laughs) that's affordable to uh, receive those services that he needs. And when you're trying to get access to kind of you know help you with your basic human needs, you've got the hospital, or you've got a mental health clinic that's a three hours drive. And so when you're trying to either help students or community members, um, that that lack of access is huge as well as overcoming the barriers to you know what people will think of you or what they'll hear about you or your child i know for some of my parents it's hard for them to be open about what their family's struggling with because it is such a small community and it's hard to be um you know preserve that confidentiality that they need as well
0: oh yeah yeah i didn't even think about that part um yeah, so you know, it's we know that there's stigma attached to mental health and seeking mental health support all across our our society, and I and I hope what people are are getting is that it plays out differently in different places, and the implications um, are also different. So that's that's really important. Um, so all of this that you're sharing makes me think of one question. So I got to spend some time kind of in your vicinity when we were in Washington, D.C. for Washington week. And you're like super chill and super positive and like one of the most relaxed personalities like in our cohort. And I love our cohort. Um, But we have a lot of people that like go hard and I might or might not be one of those people. And you've you've just got this kind of demeanor that's that's really calming. How do you do that with all of this that you're kind of balancing and carrying and having to adjust to on a daily basis, like, where does that come from?
1: You know, I have to credit my husband, because he's one of those people who (laughs) takes everything in stride. And so we like to classify ourselves as no drama people. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And so I think, you know, when you live in such a rural place, you kind of have to be your own problem solver, a lot of the times. Mm. And what I've learned is that um, whether it's interacting with a parent or uh, working with a broken down vehicle, if you're yep. <laughs> stuck in the snow <laughs> at 630 in the morning on your way to work, yeah. um, it, it doesn't help to get overexcited a lot of times. Um, yeah. <laughs> you just have to take everything in stride. and And I see that from my husband. I mean, I don't, I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, the chairlift is broken down and there's people on the chairlift and you have to get them off the chairlift. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to figure it out. And I think that's, you know, something he prides himself in is just being a problem solver. And when you're the only person in your school building, you can't call the principal and say, Hey, can you deal with this kid? Or you can't call the, right. com- go down to the computer guy and be like, can you fix my computer? This isn't right. working. You kind of just have to figure things out on your own. So I guess I'd like to, you know, think about that as the fact that you have to just be a, a problem solver yourself and and be resourceful yeah
0: how did it um i am i know we're running uh we're running up against time but uh two more questions i guess one has to do with your designation as 2021 montana teacher of the year how did how did that happen and how how have you felt about this last year
1: yeah so i was nominated by my county superintendent and she's the one who actually conducts our ops. Observations, and she she does that for the six rural schools in our county Mm -hmm. and she also won county superintendent of the year in our state so she's really well respected and um, has been a huge mentor to me so I think through her nomination and then people I think are really intrigued with the one room school
0: oh I know I am (laughs) it's an intriguing model for sure
1: yeah I was shocked to be even named a finalist and, um, you know, 2020 was a challenging year for everybody, no matter where you're teaching. Um, it was especially challenging for me personally as well. So when I had to do my finalist interview for teacher of the year, um, it was, right before school started in september of 2020 i did the interview and i was i was on cloud nine my husband and i were expecting our first child after a long time trying to do so and then the next day we actually lost the baby and then i had to do back to school open house the next day after that and then a week after that i was named teacher of the year the first week of school and so To talk about personal, you know, roller coaster of emotions, you know, I was still really in a healing space um, in my personal life. I had more students and grade levels than I'd ever had. I had 15 students in seven different grades to plan for. And then I was named this award, which in Montana, you don't get any money for, you just have additional duties. And so it was certainly, (laughs) um, (laughs) it was just a roller coaster. And, you know, now, we were able to uh, have a healthy baby boy this this past yeah. June, and so 2021 brought a lot of joy and um, healing for us as a family. But I definitely have felt in this journey as the Teacher of the Year. You know, you questioned was I the right person for this year? And sure, but I, I think you know as you learn, and I think we had a, 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 you know several speakers at our National Teacher of the Year Week in Washington D.C. that kind of confirms you know you are the right person for this moment in time and so I've also thought about how just because 2021 is almost over and I feel like I haven't gotten in as much as my my set expectations for myself um you're still always
0: (laughs) and you cut out but I think you said you'll still always be the 2021 state teacher of the year is that what you said
1: yes yes yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know it's almost like we went through a similar induction, right? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that's such an important point. And you know, like like you, I've I've set expectations for myself, and not really. I guess I would say I haven't really reached all of them, but I think one of the pieces that's been really amazing is just getting connected to really, uh, really dope educators, really amazing people doing amazing work in their communities. You know, and and definitely just like, I've, I've just been jotting down these things that you've been saying that have been like, oh my, oh my, that is, that is wild. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, <laughs> you just never know what life's going to throw at you. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's true. Well, listen, um I, I want to get you out, but um there's one last piece that um, I like to close our conversations with. Um, I want to have you talk about your top five anything. So those of you who listen to the Two Dope Teachers in a Mic podcast are familiar. We usually do two, the top five rappers. Um, on this one, I'm just interested in the things that make people happy. So we've had top five video games, top five travel destinations, um, et cetera. So Christy Borges, what is your top five?
1: All right, so I have reasons. I love living in a rural area.
0: All right. (laughs)
1: Number one, the only traffic jams you have to deal with are when they're moving cattle on the road. (laughs) Nice. Number two access to wide open spaces. If I go to a trailhead and there's another vehicle there, I am shocked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the assumption, right? (laughs) Yes.
1: Number three, people are impressed by your work ethic, not your wardrobe. So wearing (laughs) jeans to any event, even a black tie event is always
0: I love that. Not your work ethic, by your work ethic, not your wardrobe. I love it.
1: Yes. (laughs) Number four, we have no cell phone service. So if you (laughs) don't respond to a text or don't answer a phone call, you're excused from that. And instead, you can just connect to the people you're with (laughs) in person or to nature. I love that. And number five, your school is your community.
0: Wow. It's not just so your school is connected to your community, your school is your community. Uh, this is a fire top five. This is going to go on our social media. Um, love all that stuff about it. And Loki, kind of jealous because you know, the way you were describing Bozeman, is kind of how I'm feeling about Denver. There's like no space anywhere. They're built, like my daughter is 16 years old. And I think she believes that the state bird is the crane at this point because there's (laughs) construction constantly. And when you talk about open spaces, no cell service, oh, that sounds beautiful. Well, Christy Boris, thank you so much for um, being in this conversation today. I've learned a ton. I hope I can keep learning from you, Um, but just thank you for disrupting my thinking and uh, thank you for this incredible work that you're doing. Um, Share with me ways that uh, listeners can help advocate for the things that are needed in your school and in schools like yours, because I do think that we do need to start interrogating um, the different models and whether they really work for all students in all communities. So do share that stuff. We would love to be able to support in any way that we can.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think if I think every state does have rural schools. So if yeah. you, as a teacher or as a pre-service teacher can get out to those rural schools or meet a teacher that teaches in a rural setting, it will allow you to kind of broaden your perspective, just like um, you know for me going to DC and getting to talk with teachers from urban districts and I can learn so much from them, I think it goes both ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. yeah, and thank you for providing that education for me today. Um, folks, that is our episode. Uh, remember that if you like what you' are hearing on Habitually disruptive, you can follow us at Tudope Teachers. Um, we are a project project of Tudope Productions. Uh, We are at 2 Teachers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as Facebook. You can also, if you like the work that we are doing for as little as $5 a month, you can support us on Patreon. A shout out to our 51 patrons who helped keep the lights on here at 2Dope Productions. Uh, For Christy Borges, 2021 Montana Teacher of the Year, I am Henarko Muñoz, and I invite you to stay disruptive.